Let's talk about the life of Christ. Let's get into a few of the details. Matthew 19, if you need the notes, we'll make sure we, somebody moves around and gets those to you. <clears throat> We're in that last week or so before the Passion Week. A lot of things are going on. Jesus is on his way down towards Jerusalem. He's traveling from Galilee down that direction, joining a number of pilgrims who are headed that way, and he's going to have conversations. On the way, we have the episode of the ten lepers. On the way, he's going to have a lot of interesting conversations, and they're going to challenge him, the enemy, the Pharisees, some of the political leaders. And it's not just when he gets to Jerusalem. They're doing it all along, and, and they start bringing up topics like the kingdom of heaven. And he follows that up after talking about the kingdom of heaven. He follows it up with a discourse on prayer. He uses those parables that you're very familiar with about the Pharisee and the public and in prayer about the unjust widow. That's when he preaches this. He, they start asking questions about marriage and divorce and remarriage. That's Matthew chapter 19 where they are challenging him. And if we, uh, without going through the whole passage we looked at last week, it says in verse 3 of Matthew 19, the Pharisees came tempting him and they're challenging him, is it lawful for a man to divorce, to, uh, to divorce his wife? And so they know that po- popular opinion allows for divorce. It's very common. And uh, we talked about that at length last week. And so they figure one of two things is going to happen. If Jesus takes a real strong conservative stance, like, similar to John the Baptist, he is going to lose popularity with the crowds. That gives them the opportunity to get rid of him easier. Or if he takes a real popular, uh, unpopular stance and says some of the same things like John the Baptist. He's traveling through a region where King Herod is in control. What could happen that would be to the Pharisees' benefit if Jesus says something that upsets Herod? Herod could do the same thing he did to John the Baptist. Arrest him, behead him. <clears throat> and so there's, um, there's political undertones that are going on. And Jesus' response is, marriage is to be permanent. That's the original design of it, except for if there were sexual violations of the vows. And so he's given that teaching. You can read it in depth. We looked at it last week. Let's just conclude that section with some of the things we didn't conclude last week. We were making these comments. That uh, Jesus, by example, takes his position, a biblical position, obviously. He did not let the pressure from the critics of his teaching, of his, uh, of his kingdom message, get him to adopt a weaker position so that it would be more acceptable. Jesus is saying, this is what the Bible says. By, by the way, do we have social pressure today to water down some social positions? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. We'll be talking about that over the next few weeks. But we have some of them. Uh, abortion, living together. Uh, what's the big one right now? Okay, the homosexual gay rights movement. And if we speak and say this is wrong, what are we accused of? Intolerance. Or the term that's used sometimes is we are promoting hatred. Okay? And so um, <clears throat> I think we have to present it in a gracious way, but we have to not let pressure from, the, from society adopt a weaker position. We ought to not to let society's permissive view of divorce and remarriage impact our position in our practice just because it is like in that society it's become very popular and very easy to do here in in our state so we need to have a biblical position and operate according to the bible like jesus we ought not to be persuaded by popular opinions now that's no problem in the united states <laughs> okay is the our, our leaders sometimes dictated to by polls rather than principle 
Yeah, that happens a lot. That happens a lot. Jesus said, okay, we shouldn't be doing that. Marriage now, talking about the practical application of marriage. Marriage is to be approached with great care and commitment. That makes perfect sense. Because remember when the disciples, after he makes his comment, they said, it is better than that. If we can't, if we can't divorce unless there was unfaithfulness, it is better that we should stay single. That was their response because that doesn't give them an out if she grows old. Okay, and the reason I say that is one of the reasons you could divorce your wife that the Pharisee said is if your wife was no longer pleasing in your eyes because she has changed. Duh. Okay, which one of us hasn't changed as time goes by? Okay, and so we need to have great care and commitment. And commitment is the key word, by the way. God's primary intent for marriage is for no separation, no divorce of married folk. That is God's intent. That is his design, and we, we understand that. That was from the beginning it was so. He then also makes it clear that, um, that the husbands and wives' right... I don't know why I have Mark 1 there. But um, his husbands and wives' uh, uh, rights are on equal footings because it's the idea that ladies in, in Bible days, la- Jewish ladies could not divorce. If their husband was unfaithful, they couldn't. Jesus is broadening this, that if there's unfaithfulness on either part. Okay, Christians should not seek divorce, but work on a lasting relationship. We know that from 1 Corinthians 7. That is the desire of God's heart. Try to work things out. We also know that the New Testament allows for divorce in limited cases. The adultery, do you remember the other one in 1 Corinthians 7? What's the other um, exception clause? If they, if they, the spouse deserts because of do you remember the issue in 1 Corinthians 7? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's an issue over Christianity. It's an issue over uh, an unsafe spouse. If they leave, let them leave. And uh, so he makes those limited, those limited exception clauses. When there is a legitimate divorce, there can also be remarriage. Again, it's on a limited basis. The, where legitimate divorce or remarriage has occurred, those... Watch this. This is important for us as we talk this discussion through. Where legitimate divorce and remarriage has occurred, those believers should not be ostracized or treated as second-class Christians. Okay? Um, should, well, let me rephrase that. Was there divorced, remarried people in churches in the New Testament? Yeah. First Corinthians 7. I mean, it's, it happened. And they were there, and they were being used of the Lord. And so if we were to take a position that says, okay, we don't want any divorced people in our church, and I know some churches that do this position, okay, that no divorced people are allowed in their church. Wow. How do you minister to pe- people who have, have, in the innocency, have no choice in that matter? Um, singleness is approved in Scripture, and those who are single should not be mocked or ridiculed. Okay, and he talks about that being gifted, having gifted of singleness. And so he's, you know, it's, we talked about last week, singleness or marriage, that is going to be a very personal situation as the Lord leads in your personal life. But we should not ridicule either those who are uh, unmarried because they had no choice, because their spouse made bad decisions, or, nor should we ridicule or mock those who are single. Okay? They are gifted by the Lord for, in a very special way. Bottom line is we need to be careful when considering who to marry. It's a very, very important decision. We all know that. We understand that. <clears throat> and so that's his teaching that he's giving at that time. And it's going to be expanded upon when Paul comes along and he expands us. But that, that's the groundwork that the disciples, and this is hard for the disciples to swallow. Because this is going contrary to culture. By the way, have you ever done a Bible study with somebody? And you're, they're asking about you know, relationships like this and they find it hard to swallow? 
Uh, I'll, I'll give you illustrations, okay, without names. But I'll give you illustrations that frequently it happens that when we start ministering to somebody, what is the common relationship for people in our modern day? Living together, okay? And so when you're talking and you're going through a Bible study, you usually, it, it invariably, if the Spirit of God is there, invariably they're going to ask this question. It's going to come up. And many times the reaction is, whoa. Okay? But what happens? You present the truth, and if they're born again, what's going to happen? The truth is going to produce fruit, and there's going to be typically a good response. But can you understand why some people, that takes time to, to think this through? Because they've been told for so long, it's okay. And so that makes a big difference. And it happens to you and me on other issues too. Okay, And it's going to happen more and more. when we, In our society, there's going to be more and more common acceptance of the... Um, the same-sex marriages, and that's going to become more and more of a confronting issue for us. And the Spirit of God has an amazing way of working in hearts, and we appreciate that. Okay, right after he's preached on this marriage and divorce, then another topic comes up. Okay, it's kind of like a byproduct. Watch what happens after he's preached that. And he's gone from Matthew 19, 1 down to about verse uh, 12. Soon as it happens, we get this impression. Then were there brought unto him little kids that he should put his hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked them. And Jesus said, Suffer the little children, forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. He lays his hand on them and departed. How do these situations come together so quickly? And I think it's very interesting because he's just talked about, as we, ta as we talk about marriage and family, well, when you talk about marriage and family, especially divorce, who's affected by it? Children are, right? They're, they're tragically affected by a lot of that. And so it just seems to flow right together that you're talking family units and then the kids become an issue. And understand and remember, back in Bible days, it was very, very common. In, um, in, in you know, modern time politics, it's very common that people would bring the babies and they want the politicians to, not necessarily today anymore, but in recent history, kiss the babies. That was very important. Okay? In Bible days, they had the idea that whoever a preacher was, whoever the clergy was, that they would pronounce a special blessing upon the child. So the parents would frequently, if there's a popular, um, um, reputable preacher come through, they want them to give a special blessing to that child. And so the, the, it's not unusual that the parents would want to do this. Understand, according to Mark, who gives us some information at the same time, in Mark, the children, the word he uses for children is the idea of small children, small enough that he can pick them up in his arms. That's what it talks about. He takes them in his arms. And so we're talking little kids. We're not talking the big, you know, the, uh, the big half-grown kids. And so what happens is in that culture, understand some of the setting that this is taking place. Typically children, to, and this, this has been up until recent, children are to be seen and not heard. So basically the children are out of the way. They're more of a bother. We'll make sure that they're, out of, they're not in the public uh, arena. And Jesus at this time, if you remember what's happening, there's crowds. And it's busyness, and they're traveling. And as they're traveling, if you're going to stop and deal with kids, <clears throat> well, let, let's rephrase this. You travel with kids in your car. Does that increase stoppage times if you're going on a long trip? Okay, why? Bathroom breaks. Okay, what's that? Yeah, yeah, the bathroom. The bladders is, is an issue. 
What about your own sanity? <laughs> so, you know, you need those bricks. So as they're traveling and they have a destination, put yourself in their spot. They have a destination. If you're stopping for the kids, you could be stopping. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so the disciples have this in mind. Jesus is being accosted. There's conflicts. We got a large crowd here. Let's not get preoccupied with the babies. Let's keep this thing moving. We have a purpose. We're headed for Jerusalem. We're on a deadline because Passover is coming. And so you can understand where the Pharisees are coming from. And so Jesus, what happens when the, fair, when the parents bring the children to Jesus for blessings, which we understand that happens, it says in your text, they rebuked the parents. That's a harsh term. It's the idea like, get away, go, okay, move it, you know. And so they're harsh with the parents. Jesus saw what was happening. And if we compare the passage in Mark chapter 10, it gives us his feelings. It says he was much displeased. With who? Who's he get upset with? His disciples. Okay, he's upset with the disciples. And so it's not just minor. So read this in context that when he says, suffer the little children unto me, it's a rebuke. He's saying this in a, in a stronger fashion because he's much displeased with the disciples. The idea literally man, means he's pained, he's moved with indignation. This is serious to him. And so he says to the disciples, you've got to let the kids come to me. There's a whole lot of preaching that comes to this. But let's make some, uh, some obvious, obvious facts that we can conclude. Jesus does not reject the children. That's a fact. Okay, We know that he doesn't reject children. He did not want the children sent away from him. He wanted to engage with the children. That's an obvious fact. Obvious fact is he goes on to use the children to illustrate some other spiritual truths. Those are the obvious facts from this. That Jesus rebukes the disciples and says, come on, we need to minister to the kids. That's a critical, important part. Do not send the kids away from me. And so that's the setting. And then he goes on and he teaches some. And he makes very brief comments in, in Matthew where he says... Uh, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this passage is all of a sudden, a lot of different points of views can come out of this, that one phrase. Okay? What do you think some churches grab for you know, the kingdom of heaven, such are the kingdom of heaven? What do some churches automatically take out of that verse? Okay, that children are guaranteed to go to heaven. Okay, that children, you know, this is, you know, this is when people, you know, the, they're, they, they don't, you know, the kids, in fact, um, I've alluded to this over in Georgia when Tony was there and he was teaching, this is one of the texts that was used that kids don't need to get saved until they become an adult. Because according to this text, they're going to heaven no matter what. They aren't sinners uh, until they become an adult. That has to come from people who haven't had children. <laughs> Our children, do children have to be taught to sin? No, no. We, we just, some of us do it so quickly with, without any kind of instruction whatsoever. And so there's a lot of different teaching. Now let's just take the phrase and let's get what the, what's clear. When he is going to use the phrase, that whosoever type of a concept, that's going to come out of here and out of the text. And in fact, Mark is the one that uses, the, uses some of that that, con that, uh, that context. So I'm going to flip over to Mark to get a little bit more of some of the wording that he's going to do. If I can find the exact same passage where he says, Suffer the little children to come to me. I'm in Mark chapter 10, down in verse 14, 15. And forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven, now, or of God. Now, Mark adds this next phrase. 
Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, <coughs> he shall not enter therein. And so Mark gives a little bit more of the wording of Jesus. Taking that wording of Jesus, the whosoever, here's a concept, he is opening it up to all. By the way, for the Jews standing here, what does that whosoever include? That they have to swallow. That would be hard for them to digest. Yeah, Pharisees, the, um, the, the uh, dregs of society, and even worse than that, Gentiles. Okay, and so Jesus is opening that. We understand that because we've heard this a lot from Jesus. Of such is the kingdom of God. Now, that's where some have read this that says children are bound for heaven. And some have said, um, you know, the kids can get, oh, and we, we would say, we would agree with this, children can get into the kingdom. There's no doubt about it. But then that phrase, receive the kingdom of God as little children. What does that mean? How is that in, you know, is he talking age group? You have to get saved. And some interpret this. They, you can only, they, they say this passage teaches you have to get saved as a child or you can't get saved. How would you refute that? Yeah, the issue isn't that. It isn't that at all. It's not age. You have to be saved before. Here's, here's what we got. Two different views. You can't get saved until... You don't need to be saved until you're 21. Okay? If you don't get saved before 21, you can never get saved. Okay. Well, do you have biblical examples to refute that idea that adults can get saved? What's that? Oh, crucifixion. Great example. Okay, you got a thief. Okay, he's older. Do you have, well, let's just start naming adults who are beyond child age in the New Testament that get saved. Okay, Paul. The cross, the crucifixion. Um, the Ethiopian eunuch. Yeah, okay. Uh, the book, the Philippian Jailer, you're just flooded with examples. So it's like, okay, don't grab, let's go back to our theology. You don't grab one verse out of context and run rampant with some thought, you know. But have you ever heard somebody say, hey, I've seen something in Scripture nobody else has seen before? If they say that, what's that? Run. Okay. Yeah. Because it should, you know, most, most truth is apparent. Okay. And so you always get, you always get, <laughs> run is a good word. Okay. Just flee from those who. So what he's talking about is not the concept of age. He's talking not age, but attitude. Is that a fair, a fair interpretation, would you say? Okay. We're talking more of an attitude. What type of an attitude does a child have that is necessary to duplicate in no matter what your age is so you can get into the kingdom of heaven. What's that? They're trusting, okay? Yeah, take things at face value. Anything else? The humility? The, what did you say? Dependency? Okay, I think that's what he's dealing with, is that childlike faith. Okay, he's not promoting immaturity. He's promoting childlike faith, which we just put down simple belief, total trust, total dependence, submission concept. Okay, that's what he's talking about. He's using them as a spiritual illustration of attitude or spiritual truth. And so we're going to conclude what he does from there. And it's interesting how this all keeps on working out, this whole story. But let's just make some observations. Let's stop and just say, okay, the supremacy of marriage is true in Scripture. 
and the most important relationship is parent and child. But that doesn't mean we should diminish the value of children. Okay? Now, in our society, that's typically not the problem. In our society, we don't devalue children in the family. What is the more common problem? We elevate children so that they end up... Should we, should we use the phrase running the home? And everything centers around them. Right? Okay. Now, in Bible days, that wasn't as much culturally the problem. In Bible days, the kids were so diminished, they were put down, and they were to be seen and not heard, and they were basically, they weren't even necessarily, remember some of this uh, Greek-Roman society, they weren't even your kids until you came to a point where you would do what with them legally? Uh, you would adopt your children. And so they were, they were on the par of a servant until you adopted them. So that's a different, different mindset than you and I have in our world. But it's a biblical concept that we, ha- we cannot diminish children. Do not discount the importance of or contributions children can make to Christianity. I think that's a valid case. Okay? We go a little bit further. We should not hinder children from following Christ in any way. That's a truism for our society. And by the way, in American culture, when do the majority of people who get born again, what age group are they when they get born again? The, major, the vast majority get saved when they're preteen, teen, or adult. It's preteen. It's preteen. The vast majority are preteen. So we want to make sure that we always uh, monitor that and keep in mind that that's in our culture. That's very, very important. Like Jesus, we should openly welcome and encourage children to participate, learn, and be involved in spiritual events and activities. Like Jesus, we should take opportunities to minister to children. It's not a waste of our time and talents. And I, I'm, this is me. Now, maybe you, you don't feel the same way. But if somebody says to me, Oh, well, you know, I didn't have time to prepare my lesson because it's only third graders. Really? Really? You are teaching God's word to people. It deserves your best no matter who that people is. People is. <laughs> okay. True? Okay. We should not diminish the value or the understanding of children when it comes to spiritual truths. Because kids can do this. I, I don't know about, about most of you, but when I've taught kids, they can be doing the wiggle worm thing and all over, and you're thinking, they are not listening. You know, they're poking their fingers in somebody else's ears. I stopped. Okay. Um, yeah. They're pulling on hair, and then you ask, okay, did you hear what I said? And they can tell you what you said. They have the ability to multitask. That's lost when boys get about 16 years of age, okay? <laughs> the, the girls maintain that, okay? Because moms can do that so well. But the rest of us, we lose that. Although we do not, uh, we are not to be childish, we should be childlike. And we would put up here some of the same attitudes we had. Dependence, obedience, teachability, trusting. You can add other things. So he's giving that, that formula. And again... This is interesting, because now think with me for a moment. You're dealing with a culture that said what people are, are able to respond spiritually. The Pharisees, the wealthy, the people who cannot and we don't spend time with are the poor, the sinners, the widows, and there was another group. Not, not the, I'm talking in Jewish society, the kids, the kids. So Jesus has just, in these, in these whole, now think the last two chapters, he has turned this upside down for ministry. 
Do the disciples need to understand that? Yeah, because what's he preparing for? What's going to happen in the next three, four weeks? And they have to take over his ministry. They have to learn that they cannot operate by what's been the cultural mores in what they've seen as they've grown up. They have got to reach all peoples, all classes, all ages, all, both genders, and all different ethnic groups. And that's, that's, you know, if you were a disciple, you have to... Can, can I make a parallel that's a terrible parallel? This is like telling somebody who grew up in 1700s America in the Deep South that you need to preach the word to your, your, black, you know, your slaves, your black people. And that would be so anti-cultural. That would be a shock. That's, what, that's what's happening here. That's what Jesus is preparing them. And, and you and I, it doesn't hit us as strongly because we know the end of the story. We're already geared up to say we need children's ministries. We're already geared up to say all ethnic groups count. We're already geared up to say both genders count. And so this is really, this is, this is really revolutionary teaching that he's doing in that society. And so then it just, it just explodes a guy comes running up to Jesus, and I think it's right in this, I think I want to be in Matthew. Um, yeah, Matthew chapter 19. You can keep your finger, Mark will have some too. But Matthew 19, and behold, it says, verse 16, one came to him. Now, one of the other passages gives the idea that he's running to him. Okay, there's so, so somebody is moving quickly. Yeah, Mark says, and when he was gone forth into the way, he's traveling once again, there came one running and kneels to him. And so there's the idea that there's somebody that's got urgency here. And it's the rich young ruler who comes running to Jesus. Now, we have to set the scene to get this whole story straight. We take Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and, well, Matthew, Mark, Luke. We compare those. We know Jesus is traveling. He's on the road again. We know that a young man, and by the way, young man in the New Testament can be about 40 years of age. That's typical calling people that age young men. Thank you. We appreciate that very much. Okay, that they're young. And he's a ruler or probably, therefore, a member of the Sanhedrin is the idea, or some type of synagogue leader. So this is an important guy. He's reputable. He's, um, he's not knowledgeable of scripture. He is rich. He is wealthy. He's running to Jesus. He kneels before Jesus. He just doesn't come and kneel. Now here's the debate that you have. Okay. And you're going to get two different points of views. And frankly, we don't know. Okay. So in, in just the previous story, when the Pharisees came to him, what were they trying to do? Discern truth or trip him up? Trip him up. When, they, when he further goes into Jerusalem, do they ask questions to discern truth or trip him up? It's typically trip him up. So the debate that happens right here is people try to read into the story and say, is this man coming to trip Jesus up or is he trying to discern truth? We don't know. But if we can just, because it doesn't say. Some passages, like the divorce passage, it said they came tempting him. This one doesn't say. But there's a couple different observations we can make that say this man does something different than most Pharisees did. Right? He came with urgency, but he also did something before Jesus. He knelt before him, which indicates what typically? Okay. Respect, elevation, yes, no. A form of what, what don't Pharisees have? The story of the publican and the Pharisee praying. 
Yeah, so, so, so you have some saying this was all a trip-up measure, and this man was just a phony. I don't know. There's others saying, no, he seems to be genuinely seeking and searching. I don't know. But those are your debates, and that's where you, you know, you'll have to determine how you understand the text, because we are not told. But the man comes up, and he uses words that are very, very interesting. He says to Jesus, and they, they don't mean as much impact to you and me unless we were Jews living in that time period. He says, good master, um, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And so we have to understand what he's talking about. Is He is emphasizing this idea of entering into the kingdom. That's the concept. It's basically what you and I would say heaven is the concept here. The kingdom from a Jewish point of view. The man is focused on what he needs to do. Now, if you know the rest of the story, has the man done stuff already to try to merit heaven? Yeah, because Jesus says to him, okay, here's what you need to do. Um, He says to the fellow, he says, if you will enter into life, keep the, the commandments. And Jesus goes on and says to him, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you should honor your father and mother, you shall uh, love your neighbor. What section of the commandments are those? If you take the Ten Commandments, what section is that? Do you approximate numbers? One, two, three, four. Okay. Do you remember, just, just for memory's sake, do you remember that many times we divide the Ten Commandments into two basic parts? One is this relationship. Okay. What's the other relationship? Okay. And there are, there's like the first four are dealing with this. The last six are dealing with this. Okay. Summarize the entire Ten Commandments. You shall love the, with all your heart, you shall love Okay, okay, so, so with that in mind, Jesus is quoting which section of commands for the most part? The second half, the people to people, okay? Um, and, and by the way, doesn't this make sense? If you have this, then this will happen, right? Okay, you can't have, you can't jump to this without this. It'll be impossible to do, True. Okay, and so Jesus is the, Jesus, this situation. Jesus takes him to the part of this. Okay, that's an easy one for to validate and to verify. And uh, this man is going to respond. He's going to say, "I've done all them. I've kept them." Not only does he say, "Look at the text." Not only does he say, "Am I keeping them?" But what does he emphasize? I have, I have kept them from, from my youth from when I was a little kid, what kind of guy would you say this is? Either he's a big liar, I understand that, but if we take him at face value, how are you going to describe this guy? Okay. Good guy, bad guy? Guy you'd like your daughter to date? No, I mean from a world's perspective. Is Is he a good guy? Yeah, okay. You'd like your kids to hang around him? Okay, that's the typical. He's a, he's a moral guy. Right? And by Jewish standards, he's very moral. By Jewish standards, he's the hoi polloi of society. Okay. Now, here's the question that you got. He, I'm going to take, and this is, this is my, my uh, spin on it. I understand he's coming to Jesus, not to trip Jesus up. It just strikes me that there's, there's genuineness in, the, in everything that happens. He's... Coming to Jesus, if this is true, if he's coming with sincerity, he believes Jesus has some type of handle on the truth. Right? 
Jesus has something here, information that he wants. Jesus has some type of authority in the kingdom. And by this all plays together with the wording that, that's, that's being used. Okay? This man is willing to do something big, something better, something more than what he knows. And so he's, you know, if I, if I understand it right by, by the wording and everything, this guy is coming and saying, you're the man, tell me what I need to do to make sure I inherit eternal life. And, and by the way, with that, um, that, which one uses the inherit? Um... Yeah, Mark uses the inherit phrase. The inherit eternal life, some have interpreted that it's not just the access to heaven, but it is also what happens in heaven to those who are faithful. Rewards. Okay, there's rewards. And so some will say this man is confident of getting in, but Matthew doesn't give that sense. But according to Mark, he wants more than just getting in. He wants to hear the well done thou, good and faithful servant. So he's asking more to it. But either way, this man is thinking Jesus has a handle on this. Jesus has authority. And Jesus' response is very interesting. Now we get into the wording. What does Jesus ask that kind of looks odd to you and me? Why do you call me... Good. Wait, now, wait a minute. Jesus is good. He went about doing good. So why does Jesus ask that question back to the guy? Why do you call me good? What's his purpose? What's his point? What's he getting at? Well, okay, understand a little bit. Let's go back and let's understand. Jesus asked this probing question. He doesn't deny the fact that he is good. He's asking the man, why do you call me good? He isn't saying, I'm not good. This isn't a false humility on Jesus' part. Jesus is going to teach him. He's going to probe. Typically in Jewish cultures, you do not use agathos for people. It's a, it's, there's more than one word for good. This word was used in relationship to God or, or righteousness. And so something that is holy, something that is exalted. But it's that intrinsically good from, the, uh, from, outs, uh, from inside out. And so Jesus says, why do you call me good? Because this title, good master, is typically reserved for, in Jewish writings, for God. Okay, now follow what happens here. He comes up and he says... I'm going to rephrase the terms now. God, master, you are like God. Tell me how to get into your kingdom. Whoa, whoa. Jesus is coming back and saying, do you really think I am God? Does that make sense? Because if you think I'm God, then whatever I tell you to do, you you need to do it. Do you, are, are you, do you believe in your heart what you are saying with your lips? Okay. D- does that make sense? Okay. Because sometimes we sing things. Um, we sing things that are, that if we're not careful, they become pious platitudes. Like, I surrender all. Can we say that with our lips and, you know, and if God were here, he'd say, did you really say you would surrender your all? That's the type of thing. That's what's happening here. And so uh, Jesus points out only God is good. Are you saying, here's, here's some questions I think that can come back. Are you saying I am right and correct in everything I say? Because as a whole, up to this point, what have the Pharisees been saying? Many of the Pharisees saying he is in league with, 
Yeah, with Beelzebub, with Satan. So this is, a, this is to see where this man is theologically. Is he with the rest of the Sanhedrin or synagogue that he's a ruler at? Are you saying I am equal to God? Is that what you're saying? If, you, if so, are you willing to do what I answer? What I tell you to do? Is this, is this what you really mean? Do you really mean? Now here's, only God is good. And you're saying you want to do a good, a God-like thing. So what standard are you doing? Now that, that's important because Jesus is going to respond and he elevates the standard. The standard is not just part of this. It's a, it's a God standard. More than just a moral standard. A character standard. He's going to go, Jesus is taking this guy. His response to me is a real probing response to the man. And the man says, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, you're God, you're good. And whatever the perfection standard is, I'm willing to obey it. Well, have you done this, 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 this? Yes, I have. I've kept these all from my youth. And Jesus then, being good, God, Jesus responds and says, okay, um, and the man asks Jesus, look at verse 20. There's a question the man follows it up with. The man says, do I lack anything? Okay, according to the man, his answer is, no. I don't know of anything I lack. Jesus says, if you will be perfect, sinless, if you will be good, okay, totally, in and of yourself, go and sell everything that you have, give it to the poor. You shall have treasure in heaven. Now, folk, he doesn't stop there. There's a second command. What's the second command? Come and... Okay, now there's two commands in this text. That's how Jesus responds that are very important. Jesus is basically, some will say, oh, what Jesus, his initial response, and you, you know better than this. Some read and interpret this and say, when Jesus said, do not murder, do not commit adultery, Jesus is saying, you get to heaven by good works. You and I know that's not what he was doing. He wasn't promoting good works as getting into heaven, but he is saying a couple things. He is saying, if you have faith, it has to work. True? Can you back this up with scripture? Faith without works is dead. Okay. And I think there's more to it. I think Jesus is trying to get the man to do what? To really evaluate himself. So he's asking, did you do this? Did you do this? Okay. And he says, okay, to really complete everything, to be totally perfect, you need to, okay, Get, you know, get rid of everything. Jesus is trying to show him his imperfections. He's trying to show him that this man is flawed, even though the man can't see his spiritual flaws or his sinfulness. Okay, the man typically is like many of us. We don't see our own spiritual bankruptcy. And by the way, this isn't so far off from some of us who grew up in churches that tell us we have to work. We would have said, okay, what must I do to get into, into eternal life? What were some of the things you and I were banking on before we came to knowledge of Christ? What are some of the religious activities we were told we have to do? Be baptized. Take communion. Give money. What else? Okay. Lloyd, you're the only one? Okay. Do what? Attend church. Okay. Okay. Do all kinds of good works. Well, that's basically in Jesus. And Jesus is saying, well, those aren't bad things. But let's deal where you're at, okay? You, you, you sell everything and you start following me. Now, which part of these, this command is tough for this guy? Is it, is it the uh, idea that 
you know, you have to get rid of your riches or that you have to follow Christ. <laughs> you know, but there's two commands here. There's two commands that he gives. What's the man's response when he hears this from Jesus? What's the text say? What's his emotion? Okay. Now, he's not just upset. Okay. Okay, he's going ahead really, really, really upset. Um, I want you to go to Mark. There's a phrase here that's really, that I never caught before. Okay. You probably did, but I didn't. Okay. It says in verse 22 of Mark, uh, Mark chapter 10, he was sad at the saying and he went away. Anybody have it? Grieving. What's that mean? It's the funeral term. He went away like he just lost everything. But I want you to catch what, G, what, what Mark says about Jesus when Jesus and this man are talking. Do you see a phrase there that's kind of, whoa? It describes Jesus in relationship to this man. Okay, not that. It's in, it's, uh, Mastery says, I have done all these things from my youth. Verse 21 of Mark 10. What does Mark add here? Then Jesus, while beholding him, what's that mean? Does that mean Jesus didn't like the guy beforehand? You think that's what it is? That he's telling him the truth in love, the aspect? He loved him, and loved him enough that he's going to speak the truth? That's a possibility. I don't know. I just find it a very odd phrase descriptively, and, and that's just me. Maybe you don't. It's just like, well, Jesus, in my mind, Jesus loves everyone. So why does Mark say Jesus, beholding him, loved him? Oh, he didn't before? Well, he did, but something's, something's here. Maybe that's what it is. Is Jesus moved with compassion? Could be the idea that he's going to speak the truth. But it's, but it's interesting that Jesus is not, re- is not saying, you are a scoundrel. You are trying to trip me up and I'm just going to, you know, whip something back at you. Jesus is moved towards this man. There's, a, there's a, uh, an emotional attachment toward this guy and probably because the same thing you have done with people that you talk to spiritually, you think they are, oh, they're listening, they're listening, they're listening, they're listening, they're listening. This is so cool. This is so cool. And then what happens? All of a sudden they shut the door. They shut. And what do you feel? You go, oh, man, they were that close. And how do you feel? Don't you feel brokenhearted? They were that close. And they walked away. So is that what it is? I I think, but I really don't know. You're probably better at figuring out than me. Okay? Uh, You give more thought. Um, So Jesus is dealing with the man's besetting sin. One of it, obviously, the coveting is a besetting sin that wasn't mentioned before. Um, He's obviously dealing with saying, you're going to have to follow me, and following me is requiring great sacrifice. Remember now, Jesus has already preached on two occasions, pick up your cross and follow me. So that's been laid out. So he's laying it out for this guy, and it's going to require, and Jesus has already taught. Just, do you remember? He talked about he's headed for Jerusalem, he's going to do his kingdom, but when he, what's going to happen to him at Ju- Jerusalem, he's predicted he's going to die. And his disciples are struggling with that. And so Jesus is making it clear, um, you're going to have to face some persecution. And this is kind of tough. Because for this guy, if he follows Jesus, how does that affect him practically? Do you remember his position? 
What's probably going to happen to him? He's going to be rejected by who? Okay, the other Pharisees. He's in that group. Do you remember? He's a rich, young... Yeah, so he's going to probably lose job position, which means in time he'll lose his, his, his investments. So this guy's got a lot to give up, and he's just not willing to give it up. You, you've run into people like that, that you get that close. And so it's happening, and so Jesus... You know, Jesus responds. Uh, the man's conclusion, he goes away sad, grieved. In other words, he loved his money. He loved his lifestyle more than the needy. Not willing to follow Jesus Christ. He's upset by the requirements. This man didn't have spiritual allegiances. Now, what's interesting is the man starts walking away. Let's pick up the story. We, we know the man. We never hear any more about him. Does he ever get saved? We don't know. We hear no more about it. But, okay, watch what happens after that. Verse 27. I'm in Matthew. I'm back in Matthew 19. Okay. Um, when the disciples heard, I'm in uh, 19 verse 25, when the disciples, oops, uh, no, I want to be back a little bit further, sorry. I want to be back in verse 23. The man is going away, verse 22, he had great possessions, so Jesus is identifying through the Spirit of God that it's the money that was giving him a problem more than anything. Then Jesus says to the disciples, Truly, truly, I say unto you, a rich man shall, it'll be hard for him to enter into the kingdom. Again, I'm going to say this to you, it'll be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 25, the disciples, when they heard this, what does it describe them? They were what? Not just amazed or surprised, they're what? They're exceedingly amazed, saying, if that's the case, then... Okay, why do they say that? Why are they saying that? You and I know. We know this. We know it's hard for rich people to get saved because they think they're better. There's, and, they, and in a way, are they more successful than most of us? Yeah, okay, so that pride, okay, is there. Uh, what other attitude goes along with it? Yeah, self-sufficiency, right? I don't need that. Okay, um, you know, this, this is for needy people. And so there's a rejection that way. And we understand that. Why don't the disciples get that? Okay, let's go back to Jewish thinking. Let's go back to Jewish thinking. What people are guaranteed heaven? The rich people. Because God in the Old Testament promised to... Bless those who loved him. And they assumed that meant physical blessing. So if they are physically blessed, they are more loved by God. Wait a minute. Didn't Jesus just teach on this a few weeks before? Do you remember the parable that he gave about two people dying? Remember, one was a rich man and a beggar. And what happened to the rich man? He ends up in hell, and that's a shocking teaching. He already taught them one time. Surely they should get it after one message. They are just like, yeah, okay, let's do another message on God this morning and see what we get out of it, okay? Thanks for listening up to this point. Appreciate it.